Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. This is Kim Greenhouse. I'm very excited today. I've waited a year to bring our guest to the show. The subject of today's interview is a passionate subject of mine that has to do with bioidentical hormones. And what I want you to know is that the traditional medical establishment, the FDA, and other agencies have confused and misrepresented the benefits of bioidentical hormones. Women who were experimented on and given horse urine for years that developed many cancers in women. My mother took Premarin. Friends of mine took Premarin. And though the woman's body is very complex, and we acknowledge that, there's something profound about Dr. Jonathan Wright's recommendation and philosophy to always copy nature. Dr. Jonathan Wright is the Tahoma Clinic's founder and medical director. He is the author and co-author of 16 books. And today we're going to be talking about Stay Young and Sexy with Bioidentical Hormone Replacement, The Science Explained, that Dr. Wright co-authored with Lane Leonard. It's revised, expanded, and updated. It's profound because practically everything we hear about bioidentical hormones and hormones in general is misunderstood and communicated in a confusing manner. It's very hard for even educated and sophisticated consumers who do their due diligence to figure out how to test themselves hormonally, what type of hormones they should be taking, the quantity, the timing. But the man who's here today has been practicing medicine for a long time and focuses on disease prevention and treatment by natural biochemical and bioenergetic means. He is wise and he is sought after as a lecturer and speaker all over the world. He's seen many, many thousands of patients into the 30,000 realm of patients and more. He has received the Linus Pauling Award from the Society of Orthomolecular Health Medicine. And it is a great pleasure and an honor to welcome Dr. Jonathan Wright to its rainmaking time. Good evening. Well, good evening, and uh, thank you very much for all of that. Let's begin with a critical frame of reference for the public who doesn't get that hormones and bioidentical hormones are molecularly different and universes apart in terms of what they do in the body. Talk a little bit about what that means. Well, if you mean what was called hormone replacement therapy that then um, got into some trouble with the Women's Health Initiative, uh, was not at all hormone replacement therapy. Instead, it used two types of molecules, estrogens, and by the way, that was a plural word, but there were several estrogens. And then there was something called a progestogen. Now, progestogen is a made-up name, totally made up, for molecules that do not exist in nature. They simply don't. But they sort of act like the human hormone progesterone. So the question might come up, why not just use the human human hormone progesterone? And the answer insofar as, let's call it conventional medicine goes, 
is it's not patentable. And what doctors were promoted is this stuff called a progesterone, progestogen, a molecule not found in nature. If it's not found in nature, that means that literally it doesn't originate on this planet. And of course, it makes absolutely no sense to be putting molecules into our bodies that have never been found on the planet before somebody created them in a test tube. Because our bodies have been running on different molecules for as long as we've had bodies. Now, that was the progestogen, a made-up name to try to fool us into thinking, well, it's just uh, progesterone anyway, let's use it. The other group were the estrogens. Now, those were natural estrogens, but they're natural to horses. Some of them are the same as human. A large proportion are them not the same as human. And the same question comes up, even though it's natural, if it never was found in human bodies before, and specifically molecules called equilins, which are obviously named after horses, even though they're estrogens, then what do we do and put them in human bodies? In fact, that's the question I got. You probably know that this uh, field of bioidentical hormones, at least uh, in our span of time on the planet, got started right at Tahoma Clinic when a woman came on in and asked me for replacement natural hormones and I wrote her a prescription. Uh, halfway through writing the prescription, I get figured out she must be a school teacher because she could read upside down. And she read the prescription pad which said Premarin, and she says, hey, uh, that's horse estrogen. And I said, yes, uh, you asked about natural estrogen. And she said, but do I look like a horse? <laughs> I'm not kidding. That's what she said. <laughs> and, uh, of course, guys know better than to answer that kind of a question, especially coming from a woman. So I avoided the question and went somewhere else. And she interrupted me and said, what I want are the same, very same exact hormones I had in me when I was 33. Thank you. And I had to explain that most of them aren't available. There was one specific estrogen, but not a complex of estrogens. They just weren't available in the pharmacies anywhere. So um, she acted like um, some guys' wives do. Um, in fact, many guys' wives, she says, oh, I'm sure you'll take care of that. Now, she didn't say you'll take care of that deer, but it sounded that way. She says, I'll be back in a couple of months. So, and we talked about a few more things, and she says, I'll be back in a couple of months, and let's see what you can get going. Well, with the help of a very, very good compounding pharmacist in Vancouver, British Columbia, his name is Ed Thorpe of Cripps, K-R-I-P-P-S Pharmacy, he was able to source all this material. I don't know why nobody thought of it before, but why in Canada? Because I literally couldn't find a compounding pharmacist in the United States. And this was how long ago exactly? 1982 or three, I forget which. Wow, you were all so ahead of your time. My God. You know, if you're in medical practice, you do what you can to take care of your patients. That's why you went to medical school. At least, I thought that's why we went to medical school. So it was all her fault. She just told me she didn't look like a horse and she wanted her own hormones if she could get them. So Ed found them. And that is the very first time that I could find that a complete comprehensive program of bioidentical hormones was put together, including the estrogens, the progesterone, a little bit of DHEA, a little bit of testosterone for ladies even. And if one needs it, some thyroid. And we started putting those complete programs together back then. Um, but you know what? It's not the first time this has been done on this planet. Did you know that bioidentical hormones were being done in China 
in the year 1150, and if you read that book... I did. I won't go into detail, but they actually were being done better in China in 1150 than they're being done now today. I believe that. I really do. That's really wild. How did you find that out, that factoid? There's a wonderful book out there called Science and Technology in Ancient China by Joseph Needham. Sounds great. By the way, his wife, Mrs. Wu, W-U, don't want to leave her out. And there are 35 <laughs> in there. Well, you can't do that, because after all, she spoke more Chinese than he did. Um, there were 35 pages in there on a topic called proto-endocrinology, which I guess is just their name for early endocrinology before anybody ever heard of endocrinology, and how the um, basically was Taoist priests at the time managed to put together bioidentical hormone programs. But unless we have the time later on, I won't go into how they did it because that's not relevant here anymore. There's a lot of confusion. Let's start with the most complex piece, which is the three main hormones. And I know there's more, but estrone, estradiol, and estriol. If you could distinguish them and then talk about how it started at a certain level where they were being dispensed at 80, 10, 10, and then how that changed. Well, those are what were called for a while in medical textbooks the, quote, classical estrogens, unquote, which does not mean that uh, they either played classical music or nobody had any other estrogens. All that means is that those are the first three that researchers concentrated on. That's all. Now, since that time, why it's been found by many researchers, actually starting back in the 60s and 70s, but it never got any publicity, that there are 20 to 30 different estrogens in women's bodies. It's just one estrogen is turned into a different estrogen, turned into a different estrogen, and they all do slightly different things. And until researchers figure out what those things are, why we're told they're unimportant, and then we find out that it's very rare that nature doesn't have a reason for doing things, and we find out that some of these so-called unimportant estrogens are, in fact, extremely important. But going back to those three so-called classical estrogens, estrone, estradiol, and estriol, that were in the textbooks at the time, those are what pharmacist Ed Thorpe sourced, and those are what I started with. And I put them together in the 80% estriol, 10% estrone, and 10% estradiol very much on purpose because a professor, Henry Lemon, who is a gynecologic oncologist, which just means a women's cancer specialist at University of Nebraska, had published articles starting in the 60s showing that estriol, which is sometimes designated E3 and estrone is E1 and estradiol is E2, but anyway, estriol was quite anti-carcinogenic, whereas the other two were somewhat pro-carcinogenic. Yes, there is a balance in nature between the good side and the bad side. The good side of the estradiol, which is pro-carcinogenic, is it's responsible for development of breasts and hips and menstrual periods and all that stuff, and that's very important, but it's also slightly pro-carcinogenic. Whereas estriol, according to much more modern research uh, in the 90s and 2000s, is the estrogen that's responsible for a couple of things, one of them being the emotional part of estrogen. It seems that estradiol influences the reproductive functions in the brain, whereas estriol influences the emotional 
be more happy. So clarify that again so we don't get the two mixed up. Say that one more time if you would. Okay, the estradiol, and that is sometimes abbreviated E2, is the principal one for secondary sexual development, as it's called. You know, going to puberty if you're a lady. And secondly, for the reproductive functions, having babies, menstrual periods, and so forth. And the estriol, which is E3, is mostly responsible for the emotional part of estrogen, what estrogen does to one's emotions. Just as an example of that, uh, it's been everybody knows that during pregnancy, women have more estriol than they're ever going to have at any other time of their lives. And many, many pregnant women report being happier than they are at any other time. That's true. That goes with the estriol. So, but estriol does one other very important thing. It's an anti-carcinogen. And it's now been discovered that there is a specific estrogen receptor, which happens to be called estrogen receptor beta. There's alpha and beta, of course, because I guess we have to follow the alpha beta or alpha bet, whatever it is. And that receptor works against cancer formation. And in fact, in the early stages of cancer, if you can, um, if it can be stimulated hard enough, it just slows that cancer way, way down and maybe the body can get rid of it. So I wanted to make sure, as Dr. Lemon had published research showing that after breast cancer surgery, women who had the most estriol were most likely to survive for a long time, and women who had the least estriol were least likely to survive for a long time. I wanted to make sure that any prescription I wrote had the large proportion of the anti-carcinogenic estrogen and the happiness estrogen. And yes, smaller proportions, although still effective proportions, of the procarcinogenic estrogens. So for a couple, three years, that was called triple estrogen. No, you can't put a patent on it. That's just what the pharmacist called it. And that's what I prescribed. But we also, starting back in the early 80s, made sure to test people for how did their bodies metabolize these things because a lot of estradiol, for example, turns into estrone. And some estrone turns into estriol. I mean, these things interchange each other. But some women's bodies do it efficiently one way, and some women's bodies do it efficiently another way, and some women's bodies are inefficient, for example, at making estriol. And let's throw in a health clue right here. To get your body to make more estriol, which is the anti-carcinogen, what's needed is iodine. Iodine and iodide, of which seaweed is a very good source if you like to eat seaweed. And if you don't, there's not too many other sources of iodine in our diets, so, except for seafood, of course, which has a lot less than seaweed. So we would do, we made sure to follow up after a, person gets their, after a woman got her prescription within a couple of months and do a comprehensive test on all her estrogens and progesterone and her other sex steroids. And if they all balanced out nicely, and about eight times in ten they did, and women's bodies would handle them just fine, thank you, um, then we just continue the prescription, but then there'd be a minority of women whose bodies handled the, the hormones differently, and they'd come up with a little bit too much procarcinogen or not enough anti-carcinogen or whatever, and then we'd have to make adjustments. And safety, safety, safety is always important because even though these are natural and they belong in our bodies, and the large majority of women metabolize them properly, uh, we do know that there are 33-year-old women who get breast cancer. What's going on here? And those are frequently the women who aren't metabolizing their estrogens properly, not to any fault of their own, by the way, but still their bodies aren't doing it for them. So, but 
two, three years, um, we dropped the estrone part because we found out that the estradiol, that's the one called E2, and estrone is E1, would usually metabolize into enough estrone, and we didn't really have to put any extra in. So after that, the prescriptions were what's called BIAS, now B-I-E-S-T, for two estrogens, estradiol and estriol. And again, usually starting with 80%, 20%, 80% of the anti-carcinogen, 20% of the pro-carcinogen. But then we adjust according to what a woman's test shows. Um, she can definitely tell us, oh, I feel better with estrogens and progesterone and cycling them like nature does. And I feel like my old self again. We hear that over and over again where we didn't hear that with Premarin because, of course, she doesn't want to feel like a horse again. And we certainly didn't feel it with that progestogen stuff, which is a molecule never found in the human body ever or on the planet. One could call it a space alien molecule if one wanted to because it doesn't occur on this planet. Um, but anyway, we'd, we made sure to do this safety testing and make sure to adjust the hormones according to what that woman's response is because she can't feel if her body isn't metabolizing them properly. So that requires a test. It's time for me to shut up. I think it's your turn. <laughs> I have to let the cup empty a little bit, you know? I mean, there's a lot you're sitting on. <laughs> I want to ask you about progesterone. And I want to preface it by saying that I've been, since I knew about Dr. Lee and his work with progesterone and his Yay. discoveries, the late Dr. Lee, who contributed so much to us, there's been a lot of suppliers of progesterone, and I'm going to have you explain what it is and why it's of value, but there's been a lot of suppliers out there who have agents in the progesterone to deliver it that are not real good. I don't know if you know what I'm talking about, but sometimes the agents that are in it are chemicals that are delivering the progesterone to the person if it's a cream. Some have it in oil, and it can be very confusing for the consumer but I'd like you to talk about progesterone, and then I'd like to talk about DHEA, because my understanding of DHEA is that in women, and perhaps in men, it can convert to testosterone and into estrogen. So you have to be mindful if you're a woman taking DHEA, what the levels are. But I wonder if you could talk about those two realms. Sure. Well, one of the uh, slogans that I've used ever since I started doing so-called natural medicine has been copy nature. Now, I started with the bioidentical hormones in the early 80s, but I actually started with diet, vitamins, minerals, and botanicals in the early 70s. And at that time, it became really very, very obvious that if we're going to do effective medicine, we should not be using molecules that are normally not found in human bodies doesn't make sense. They're sometimes called patent medicines. Um, the companies that make them like to call them pharmaceuticals, but they're actually just modern-day patent medicines because they get patents on them, so they can sell them for an enormously high price. And I'm not sure why that's not recognized. We have a patent medicine industry that is enormously larger and more powerful than the patent medicines of the 1800s ever thought of being. And yet they're still the same thing, patent medicines, molecules that don't belong in people's bodies. But anyway, um, the progesterone 
should be progesterone. It's identical to what's in humans' bodies, and there is only one of those, although actually there's metabolites of progesterone, but it's progesterone itself. There's just one of those. If we're going to copy nature, what do ovaries do? Well, let's see. They have a monthly cycle. There's a bleeding cycle where both estrogen and progesterone are quite low. Not non-existent, but low. Then, first, here comes estrogen. Comes on fairly strongly. Progesterone, yes, it comes on, but only a little bit. Until we get to what's called generally mid-cycle. At that time, there's this big surge of both estrogen and progesterone. It's called the mid-cycle peak. Now, for some of us, we're familiar with the method of birth control called the rhythm method, and we take our temperature every day if we're the lady, and we look for that temperature going up, and that's when ovulation occurs, and ooh-ooh, if we don't want to get pregnant or we do want to get pregnant, we better behave accordingly. <laughs> All right. Well, at that point, the estrogen surges for a day or two, but the progesterone surges almost for the rest of the menstrual cycle and stays up there. The estrogen comes promptly back down. Uh, now, why? It comes back down to the levels it was before that ovulatory peak, as it's called. Uh, why does progesterone stay up there? Well, let's examine the name progesterone. What does it mean? It's from the Greek. It means to support gestation, progesterone. What's gestation? It's growing a baby. So if we're going to support that, we've got to have a lot of around, just in case there's a fertilized ovum and it implants in mother's uterus, we've got to support it with lots of progesterone. So the progesterone stays high. Now, if there wasn't any conception happening, then just before the menstrual period, boop, progesterone drops down to really low again, and so does the estrogen. So that's when the bleeding cycle happens again. Okay, well, if we're going to copy nature, we want to bring in estrogen right after the bleeding cycle, or if it's a postmenopausal woman, we make believe there's a bleeding cycle. Now, we don't necessarily have to have one, and that's a matter of debate. That's true. But why do we make believe? Why do we have to have three or four days with no estrogen or progesterone at all? Because that's the way nature designed things, to have estrogen progesterone at a very low level for anywhere from three to five or six days. And there's things called estrogen progesterone receptors and they get a break once a month for the entire time a woman's having her menstrual cycles. Once a month, those receptors get a break. Now, is that three to six days in a row? It's usually three or four days. We don't have to go clear out to six. Mm -hmm. And some women say, well, if I cut my hormones out for three or four days, oh, I feel bad. Those are usually who are just women who are just going through menopause just at that time. And we'll tell them, well, okay, cut them in half anyway. Give your receptors some of a break. So cut them in half so you don't feel so bad, but you've got to give those receptors a break. Here's why. In experimental animals, even when the anti-carcinogenic estrogen, estriol, is used, if we ignore that animal's what's called estrus cycle, which is the cycle that that animal has, and just keep giving the estriol, the anti-carcinogen, day after day after day, and we ignore and don't give any break, after a while, those, those animals start getting more cancers. So nature doesn't like having those hormones around all the time. Now, question of do we need to have a bleeding cycle, that one's actually been researched. It was a five-year research study done by scientists at the University of Southern California, 
and over in France, or, or France, depending on your accent. France, monsieur, France. There you go. Um, <laughs> and what they did, oh my, they had some brave research volunteer ladies. Because those ladies volunteered for a period of five years to take estrogen cycled with progesterone, to have bleeding cycles. Some of them took high enough doses to have bleeding cycles, and some of them didn't. But that wasn't the brave part. The brave part was they all had biopsies of the endometrium on a regular basis. Wow. Looking for cancer cells. And they also, of course, had um, breast exams and mammograms and all that kind of stuff for five years. So these were kind of brave, persistent volunteers. Congratulations to them. And at the end of that study, the uh, authors' um, names uh, for those who are interested are Moyer, M-O-Y-E-R, and Delineas, and I don't know if I can pronounce that or spell that. Anyway, at the end of that uh, study, they concluded it didn't make any difference whether it was bleeding or not because none of the endometrial biopsies in either group went abnormal, and they were using bioidentical estrogen, and they were using bioidentical progesterone. Aha! And this is back in the 80s or 90s. So it appears from an actual five-year study with biopsies and stuff and also mammograms that it is not absolutely necessary to have bleeding to get the job done. To have menstrual bleeding, one is on a higher dose, and some women prefer to be on a higher dose and prefer to have those cycles. But when I'm speaking with, let's say, a room full of uh, folks uh, who want to hear about bioidentical hormones, I usually ask, how many people would like to have your menstrual cycle till you're 93 years old if you have an alternative? <laughs> I don't get very many volunteers, often enough. <laughs> but it's certainly up to that woman's preference. Okay, so we put in the estrogen and progesterone on that cyclic sort of basis. Now let's go over to DHEA. DHEA is not made in the ovaries. Uh-uh. It's made in the adrenal glands. And the adrenal glands make DHEA every day. That is, after we go into puberty, they don't make much before then. All right, so if nature does it every day, and the receptors are accustomed to having it every day, then if we're going to copy nature, and we're least likely to get into trouble if we copy nature, I didn't say we're never going to get into trouble, but we're least likely to, um, then we have the DHEA taken every day, but we follow up with tests. You just pointed out the correct thing. Some women, and it's a minority, will metabolize their DHEA into testosterone. Many women don't to any degree, but you don't know before you start. And testosterone is something that women need in women's quantities as much as men need it in men's quantities. Uh, just as a parenthetical here, that's why there's so many more little old ladies than little old men. Oh. No, that's not entirely because men die sooner than women. It's because testosterone is responsible for muscle mass in both genders. It's the same hormone. And men, by nature, have more testosterone. So we have more muscles way longer into our lives, even if our testosterone levels decline. And ladies, I've actually had occasion to work with a couple people, a couple women, who had virtually zero testosterone floating around. And uh, one of them, of course, had heart failure. Heart's a big old muscle, and it's going to fail if it doesn't have the support from testosterone. And the other was just, oh, I just can't lift anything. I'm not strong like I used to be, et cetera, et cetera. 
And uh, even though she was 70, when she got her testosterone back, she was able to bulk up a little for a lady, not for a guy, but for a lady. And it's very minute trace amounts. Is that correct? That you well, basically uh, not really, because remember what in women's bodies do with testosterone. Um, turns out that in both men and women, estrogen is made directly out of testosterone. So women's bodies have the enzymes that are very, very efficient at taking most of that testosterone and turning it into estrogen. I don't want too much of that guy stuff around. Whereas men's bodies, as any women will tell you, are slow and have some of the enzyme to make estrogen out of testosterone, but it doesn't go real fast. That's why guys don't get breast. And so when men take a dose of testosterone, most of it stays home as testosterone and only a little bit leaks over into estrogen. But when women take a dose of testosterone, zip, about 80% of it becomes estrogen. So that's, that's approximation. It varies from woman to woman. So one can, has to use, it's a surprise to many women, that the dose of testosterone is sometimes as high as the dose of estrogen. And she'll say, oh, excuse me, what are you doing giving me as much testosterone as estrogen? I don't want to grow a mustache. And I tell her, you won't. Most of that has to testosterone is going to end up being estrogen. So I had to cut back the estrogen dose because you're using testosterone. And that's just the way nature goes. Who comes up with the criteria for what is the new normal or what is the anti-aging optimal levels? Is that Nature been... did. Pardon? Nature did. Copy nature. Women in their menstrual years have levels of estrogens that go from here to up there. So as long as we stay within the range of the low end of here to the high end of up there, and we stay within that range, we're least likely to get into trouble. Is that a particular age range as well that you're looking at? No, not necessarily. Okay. Um, one of the things you look at real hard is the woman's family history of cancer, estrogen-related. And that's because there is also research that shows us that even people in their 30s who have their estrogen and testosterone and other sex steroid hormones measured, the ones who have the highest levels in their 30s have a slightly higher risk of cancer when they get to be in their 50s and 60s, and that's estrogen and testosterone-related cancer. So nobody at all is ever going to say that these hormones are totally safe. They're not. Again, women get breast cancer at 33, men get testicular cancer, etc., but they're safer than anything else out there, and if they're monitored properly, they can be kept very safe. But I discourage people from going to high normal levels just simply because it is going to raise the risk just like it would with a long, younger person. Now, having said that, the gender that's easier to persuade not to go to high normal are the ladies. Some of the guys, they like that testosterone so much that I have a hard time talking them out of giving up to, you know, one, uh, one, micro, one micro something underneath the high end of normal because, hmm, they just like the way they feel. Um, but then I tell them about risks and monitoring, and a person has to make up their own mind at that point once they have the information. Can we get back to the DHEA for a moment? Because Please. once somebody has elected to optimize their hormones, and they're getting tested through a 24-hour urine test, which is very different than the way testing used to happen even 10 years ago, everybody would well, say. actually not, man. No? 
we've been doing that 20, we've been asking people to do a collection of urine for 24 hours and getting it checked for over 30 different steroid metabolites. And just incidentally, that word steroid is not a bad one. Steroid means estrogen, testosterone, DEHA, progesterone. What we think of as steroids, which so-called authorities have demonized, those are pseudo-steroids. Those are space alien molecules. And what I mean by that is that the natural human steroid was jiggered so it could be patented. It is no longer a molecule found on the planet anymore. And that way somebody could sell it at a really high price. And yes, they do cause trouble because they don't belong in the body. They're not really steroids. They're pseudo-steroids. I just want to go back and clarify one thing. You maybe have been doing 24-hour urine testing for many, many years. But as a standard of care, as far as I've been aware for the last 15 years, people have been taking their blood tests and saliva tests to measure hormones. So I think, you're again, you're way ahead of your time. The problem with the term standard of care is that it's warped. It it isn't the best care in many cases. That's right. Sometimes people say, well, why do I have to collect 24-hour urine tests? The last doctor just wanted a blood test. And I'll reach on the other side of my desk and pull out this chart that shows all these different steroid molecules. I'll say, that's a procarcinogen. That's an anti-carcinogen. This is how they get that way. I want to know your entire pattern. And you cannot, and let's underline cannot, do that on blood or salivary testing. It's just not available, and here's why. Nature doesn't make it available. There's a professor back in the 1970s by the name of Wong Cope who got some more brave women volunteers to have, get this now, estriol radioactively labeled, oi, injected into their bodies. Oh, my God. No kidding. It was bioidentical, but it was radioactive because he wanted to keep track of it. And I don't think I would have volunteered for that, but these women did. Okay. And then he did follow-up blood tests to find out how long that stuff would stay in the bloodstream. The average was between 8 and 63 minutes. And after that, it was disappeared. It went. Where'd it go? We don't know where it went. Well, I know where it went. It came out in the urine. And it went into the tissues. And so any lab, you ask any blood lab, can you check a blood test for estriol? They'll say, no, because we never find any unless you're pregnant. But on the other specimens... Oh, my God. Even the Life Extension Foundation, who I'm a member of, and I know you're on their board of advisors, they offer this great thing where you can order your own blood tests. Yeah. So that means that blood tests that I ordered for my hormones are not going to be as accurate because the most accurate way to get them is through the urine. Yes, because when you do, when you have a number of women collect the urine for 24 hours and check that for estriol and estriol and estriol, what you'll find is the large majority of women are outputting into the urine more estriol than the other two. And in fact, that was the basis of Dr. Lemon's work back in the 60s, that in order to stay in an anti-carcinogenic balance, a woman had to have more estriol than the total sum of the other two classical estrogens, the estrogen and the estradiol. Now, I'm happy to tell you that uh, Life Extension Foundation actually does offer the 24-hour urine test. Really? Oh, yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. That's great. They just uh, possibly don't publicize as much as they should, but they do offer the test, and their counselors know how to counsel people on it. Oh, that's great. Yeah. So in the future... 
I'd certainly recommend doing that. Here's another reason. There's a very potent estrogen. It was previously called a minor estrogen, but it's very, very potent as an anti-carcinogen, and you can't get that on a blood test. The stuff is called 2-methoxyestradiol. If you put that into your search engine, you'll come up with all kinds of information about how it's been found to help slow and even reverse progression of breast cancer, prostate cancer, bone cancer, blood cancer, stomach cancer, pancreatic cancer even. No kidding. Now, I didn't say cure, but it does slow them down. It does help to reverse them. And if used with cancer chemotherapy drugs, they don't have to use near as much cancer chemotherapy because this type of estrogen is such a potent anti-carcinogen. Anyway, you can't measure that in blood, but you can measure it in urine. And there are ways of getting our own bodies to make more of that estrogen internally. So if a woman gets that 24-urine specimen and she's low in estriol, why we have her take iodine? And 98 times out of 100, up goes her estriol. And if a woman gets a 24-urine specimen and finds she's low in this very potent anti-carcinogen, there are several things she can take to raise her levels of this stuff called 2-methoxyestradiol. Among them are the form of B12 called methyl B12, the form of folate called methylfolate, the stuff called S-adenosylmethionine. There's a molecule called betaine, which is otherwise known as trimethylglycine. So there are a number of things in the health food store that actually will help a woman's body make more of the most potent anti-carcinogen there is in the estrogen group. That's why the 24-hour urine specimen, in my opinion, is the only way to go for at least initial follow-up. Now, let's say we're a person's in the 80% group, and we find out, oh, her body's metabolizing all these things just fine. Then do we have to keep doing the same 24-hour urine over and over again? Nope. We can probably rely on how she's feeling. Maybe blood tests for a minor version, and only do the whole test every couple, three years. But we do that first test to screen out the people who really need the metabolic help. And by the way, the same thing applies to guys. Um, the first follow-up, we want the whole 24-hour urine test, because oddly enough, Professor Leon Bradlow from Rockefeller University has shown that the balance of estrogens in a guy's body can help determine prostate cancer risk or not. No kidding. So we always want to look at, at least I do, I always want to look at many metabolites as I possibly can of the hormones people are using the very first time and the only way of doing that. And by the way, it keeps the cost down too because uh, well, there's 30 or 40 metabolites and the whole test is about $300. Uh, the only way of doing that is with the 24-hour urine specimen. And then after that, if everything's going well, Especially with guys, we can go back to a blood test for testosterone and not have to have them, as one guy so politely put it, pee in a bottle for 24 hours. <laughs> what about when people come to you and they're already on a hormone? Let's say they're taking oral progesterone, for example. And women and men are going to be in different places already working with something. Some of them will have nothing. But how will you know from the test, for example, what that 200 milligrams of oral progesterone is impacting on the rest of the metabolites that you're looking at through the urine? Well, just because I've been looking at them for about, what is it, 
almost 30 years now, I know what it's going to do if you take it orally. It's all going to come out in the urine. Now, I exaggerate it. It's mostly going to come out in the urine. Right, like 80%, right? Yeah, because our ovaries, if they're making progesterone, and by the way, the adrenal glands in men make progesterone too, and neither one of them drains straight to the liver. Instead, it goes from the adrenals to the ovaries, into the veins, and the veins drain it into the heart, and the heart pumps it all over the body. And then, once it's been there, it circulates past the liver, some of it does, and the liver's job is to get rid of this stuff. And so it grabs some and kicks it out in the stool and the urine. Now, what happens if we swallow those hormones? And that's why we never should. I'll take that back, never, but we really never should take testosterone or estrogen at all orally. Well, where does the gut drain? It drains straight to the liver. And, oh, yeah, the liver's job is to get rid of the hormones. So when people swallow it, the large majority ends up in the urine and never went to their tissues. What's the point of that? Now, the only point I can think of is with progesterone. French research scientists first reported that when we swallow progesterone, unlike when it's rubbed on, which is the preferred way for most things, and we should talk about where to rub it on, too. We're going to do that. We're definitely going to do that. Yeah. Unlike when it's rubbed on, the liver makes different metabolites. Somehow, when it comes from the gut, the liver does something different with it and makes metabolites called pregnanes. And that never happens when it's rubbed on. And oddly enough, those pregnanes are tranquilizers. And they seem to be harmless ones. So some women who are having a lot of trouble with nervousness, anxiety, and so on and so on, um, if they take some of their progesterone by mouth, even though the large majority of it is going to end up in the urine, some of it's going to get to their brain and help them calm down. So what we usually will do there, and who's we? Well, we have 11 doctors at Tahoma Clinic, and we all do the hormones, and we all do the natural medicine and vitamins and minerals and so forth. So what we'll do is we'll split it. If she's real nervous and anxious and just needs to sleep better and that kind of thing, we'll say, okay, half of it, rub it in, half of it, swallow it. And then we take that into account when we look at the 24-hour urine test because, well, just for example, let's switch to DHEA for a moment. You can always tell when somebody's swallowing DHEA because the urine is just full of it. You never see it that high when it's being rubbed on. Why do we need to supplement with DHEA when you've got all these other hormones going? What's the main benefit of DHEA? Oh, my goodness, ma'am. Well, I know it's considered the great champion. It has been for years in anti-aging health, but I don't get it. If you could explain it to us, I'd appreciate it. Sure. DHEA peaks in people's bodies, both men and women. It peaks at roughly the same age, 30. And from there on, it declines and goes downhill. Now, sometimes it goes downhill rapidly, and sometimes it goes down slowly. It varies from person to person. But it simply declines. Now, one of the big jobs of DHEA is to support the immune system. It helps many factors in the immune system so they can stay strong and healthy. Uh, you know how many of us, when we're way a whole lot older, die of pneumonia? Yes. It's kind of silly, but it's an infection, and DHEA helps our bodies fight off infections and stay stronger. Another thing is that DHEA helps to mitigate against many sorts of cancer. No kidding. Um, turns out, we've all heard this, but cancers like to live without oxygen. They're, they live by what's called anaerobic metabolism. Right. Probably heard that. Yep. 
And it turns out that there is only one what biochemists call pathway of anaerobic metabolism that goes from actually blood sugar glucose through an enzyme called G6PD. I know I'm being technical. I'm sorry. That's okay. We like it. It goes through an enzyme called G6PD, and then it goes through several more steps, and then it gets to that uh, cancer cell, in, and, and it burns it anaerobically without oxygen. All right. That G6PD enzyme is slowed down by DHEA, so we don't feed the tumor if one is trying to develop itself. It's not going to do so as well because it can't draw the anaerobic energy. There's only one pathway, and the DHEA is standing like a guard over that pathway. So both supporting the immune system and helping to mitigate against some cancers makes it kind of important. I would imagine that DHEA, like the other hormones, is dosage-sensitive, as well as how is it taken? Yes, it's rubbed in like all the rest. Okay. Yeah, because, uh, again, even coming from the adrenals, it doesn't go straight to the liver ever. Let's talk about ways that people can take hormones. I understand your preference, which is take it in a cream or a gel, and it's rubbed in, but not necessarily just on the body and the skin the way a lot of women have been putting hormones on their bodies, like on their stomach or their no, arms. Now, I've been working with this long enough. It's not that I'm so smart. It's just that if you do something for long enough, you're bound to notice some things. Um, and I worked with a number of women and a few men back in the 80s who would come back and say, um, I'm just not feeling so good on these hormones like I did the first few months or the first couple, three years. And so we say, oh, all right, Are you still getting the same prescriptions to the pharmacy, still rubbing in the same amount, yes, yes. Okay, well, let's just measure your levels and see where they are. And sure enough, the levels were lower. I say, you sure you're using the same amount? Are you sure? Yes, I know. See, here's how much I'm pushing out of the syringe. Here's how much I'm pushing out of the syringe. I'm rubbing it in like I always did. Well, let's double-check your numbers. And we did give them a free test because the first one might have been wrong. And uh, sure enough, they'd still be lower. Well, one day I finally woke up and thought, huh, you know there's a difference in body surfaces. There's skin, and skin has fat cells under it. And then there's what's called mucous membrane. And mucous membrane is like lips where you can't see any fat cells under there or inside the nose. Or for women, inside the vaginal area, that's not skin, or inside the labia. For men, well, yeah, there's lips and nose, but we don't want to really put our hormones there. And the only area in the whole male pelvis is right outside the anal opening. No kidding. Uh, that's where people would grow hemorrhoids if they were going to grow hemorrhoids. And that's a mucous membrane. If everybody's ever, anybody's ever been six years old with a mirror and been looking around, you can see that that tissue is different. It doesn't have fat cells under it. Now, mucous membranes... We did a couple, three people, just some basic tests. All right, it's not working anymore. You're using the same amount. Your numbers are definitely lower than they've been in past years. Now, still use the exact same amount and switch it to the mucous membrane surface, please. And they did, and they all felt better, everyone. And we checked their numbers again, and look at that. They're right where they were when they first started using them. And what I found out over time, this just takes time, is that 
sooner or later, the large majority of folks, if they keep rubbing it on the skin, anywhere on the skin, doesn't matter where on the skin, they can change locations off and all that. Sooner or later, it will just quit absorbing as well. I don't know why. It's just an observed fact. But if they switch that same dose to the mucous membrane, bingo, it starts to work again, and it doesn't quit working. It never does quit working if it's on a mucous membrane. So, again, I don't know why that happens. I Fascinating. It happens, and some people it happens in a few months, and some people it happens after a number of years. What do you think about the xenoestrogens? People are very concerned about all the products we put on our skin, the pesticides that are in our bodies now, and I guess it's called xenoestrogens? Well, xeno just means it's a non-estrogen that comes from, quote, the environment, unquote. Now, the reason I put quotes around the environment is that it's only the environment of the last 100 years or so. Um, 10,000 years ago, there weren't xenoestrogens, excuse me, unless we thought of maybe animal estrogens or uh, some of the plant estrogens that way. But what are generally designated as xenoestrogens are the multitude of chemicals that are used as herbicides, pesticides, plasticizers, and all those things that come with so-called modern living that unfortunately have the ability of screwing with one's estrogen metabolism and hitting into the wrong estrogen receptors and raising the risk of cancer. So if we're correctly identifying xenoestrogens as the production of molecules that act like estrogen but have never been found on this planet ever, um, they're bad guys. And I would imagine that what you're describing would show up somewhere in the urine test, but is there a portion of what you see in the urine test that's being impacted, whether we know it or not, from them? No, because the 24-hour urine test is designed to just check at this time, it just checks all of the bioidentical molecules, and there's 30, 40 of those. Now, you are right. You can measure xenoestrogens, but that's an entirely different test. And it usually has to be sent off to a lab that, guess what, is called a toxicology lab with good reason because those are toxins. And toxicology labs can measure a large variety of xenoestrogens, but it's not done while we're monitoring the estrogens that a woman is rubbing on or a guy is rubbing on because that's what we're wanting to monitor. Now, every once in a while, someone will come in and say, look, uh, I have heard that the penguins in Antarctica have DDT in their penguin fat, and the polar bears have lead in their, in their polar bear fat, and the whole world is polluted, which unfortunately is true. And I want to know how polluted I am. And so fine, we'll check them for xenoestrogens at that point. But again, it has to be sent off to a toxicology lab. Got it. I understand from reading your book that the compounding pharmacies, obviously along with many of the supplements and the bioidentical hormones, are potentially and consistently being threatened by the FDA? Yes and no. Okay. Um, the first big threat was in 2008 when, when FDA, uh, who I, I uh, like to uh, go along with the Mexicans and call them Los Federales, because <laughs> they behave sort of like that, uh, kind of autocratic, and you'll do what we say no matter what, you know, like that. Um, they sent out a warning letter to compounding pharmacies saying that they should not be supplying estriol. Now, we all know that estriol belongs in human bodies. Uh, and <laughs> if we're going to do bioidentical hormones at all, we need its anti-carcinogenic potential. So fortunately, 
the Alliance for Natural Health and a lot of other people got a campaign going. Um, there were even full-page ads in the New York Times and the Washington Post and the Congressional Record and USA Today uh, saying how, in, in summary, FDA wanted to make a hormone naturally present in the human body illegal, and there were over 100,000 emails to members of Congress at that point. And even though FDA doesn't pay attention because they don't get elected, the congressional people paid attention, and something happened, and that whole anti-estriol campaign just ground to a halt. What was even funnier, though, is that the Wyeth Company, which made the Primarin, had filed a citizen's petition. Would uh, FDA pay attention to you or me if we filed a citizen's petition? Probably not. But they paid attention to Wyeth as a citizen um, against estriol, and then they were found out. And that got put into the congressional record, too, as an ad. They were selling estriol all over in Europe, and over here they were trying to get it banned. Wow. Yeah, quite remarkable. Somebody could read German, read a Wyeth commercial, and sure enough, there was estriol in it over in Germany. So that stopped. Okay. And one can still prescribe the estrogens with the estriol as one should. Now, the other, let's call it um, undercover harassment, is that at various times, FDA has gone after, in the natural food stores, DHEA, in the topical form, the rub-in form, which is the way it ought to be used. Oddly enough, and you can't sell it anymore that way, oddly enough, you can still get the pills, which is the least effective form. And they're in all the stores. Then there are some of these metabolites. And remember, I keep yammering on about pro and anti-carcinogenic metabolites? Right. Well, I want those, and they're natural, and they should be able to be prescribed. But for a while, FDA was interfering with the, inter with the importation of the tumethexiestradiol, which is that really potent natural anti-carcinogen. They were interfering with it, and the compounding pharmacists could hardly get it. Uh, why were they interfering with it? Could it be a coincidence that there's some patent medicine company that has made up the name Panzem because this stuff is so powerful against cancers and they have it in phase two and phase three trials against cancer so they can get it FDA quote approved unquote and sell it at a giant high price? Could it be a coincidence? Oh, who knows? But anyway, we still can get tumethoxyestradiol here and there, but it's a lot harder and it's a lot higher price than it would be if... There weren't, uh, well, it wasn't being turned back at the border is the way it goes. Now, there also, by the way, is an anti-carcinogenic testosterone. And by the way, this is all very hard science-based. I'm not making it up. Your audience hasn't heard about it. But there is an anti-carcinogenic testosterone. It was first worked out at the Karolinska Institute in Sweden, Stockholm. And since then, oh my, I have a giant file of scientific articles on this stuff. And in experimental animals, so far, it's, this anti-carcinogenic testosterone has helped prostate cancer to regress. How do you like that? God, that's the very opposite of what men have been taught for years. Well, yeah. <laughs> but it's those, it's those guys out there who need to, please read Dr. Abraham Morgan Taylor. Uh, his book called Testosterone from, for Life. He's a professor at Harvard, which is where I went to school, uh, undergrad. And they told me then that uh, everything Harvard said must be true. So I believed it, didn't I? So um, 
everything Dr. Morgan Taylor writes is based on science. It is true. And what he says is that the guys with the lowest testosterone are at the greatest risk for prostate cancer. No kidding. The most aggressive form. And he even has an article published in 2011 in which men with prostate cancer were given testosterone and it did not make the cancer grow in the short and intermediate term. I'm quoting Professor Morgan Taylor. But that's just plain old testosterone. There's this anti-carcinogenic metabolite of testosterone, I should say, that in experimental animal research actually made prostate cancer regress and the mechanisms of action of how it works against cancer are known, but we can summarize them by saying that when cancers start to form, the cells look disorganized under a microscope. And the worse the cancer, the more the cells are disorganized. And this anti-carcinogenic, cancer, uh, anti-carcinogenic testosterone actually helps them to reorganize and look like normal cells. It's pretty cool. All right, well, where I was going with that is to answer your question about uh, about FDA harassment. When I read up on that, I called a couple of the three of the compounding pharmacists I know. Can you get this stuff? And for a while, they could get it. And I could put it into prescriptions for men with cancer without any fear because the researchers have identified that this anti-carcinogenic testosterone metabolite, uh, let's call it by its short nickname, it's called 3-beta-adiol. Um, it is a testosterone, but it only contacts estrogen receptor beta. It doesn't contact testosterone receptors. All the researchers are very clear about that. And estrogen receptor beta is the anti-carcinogenic receptor. That's the one that estriol stimulates too. And so this stuff can only contact the anti-carcinogenic receptor, so it's quite safe for guys with cancer. And the experimental animals work shows it helped the cancers to regress. Well, guess what? Compounding pharmacists can't get it right now. Somehow, the supply of it is being interfered with. That is tragic. Yeah, it's depressing. You know, I read at the Life Extension in their big dictionary, their book about years ago, they had avocado extract that people were taking in the evening and losing a ton of weight. And a pharmaceutical company realized that it was working, patented it, and then ordered the Life Extension Foundation that they were not allowed to sell it anymore. This also happened with B6? It's a for certain form of, of B6 called pyridoxamine, which is found in nature, but some patent medicine company went and uh, got it, quote, approved, unquote. But the big scandal, which really got a lot of publicity, even the New England Journal of Medicine complained, and they hardly ever complained, was that the number one medication to prevent gout attacks called colchicine, which has been used since the time of the Egyptians, and Ben Franklin is said to have imported it from Europe to be used in this country against gout. Why, it sold for eight cents a pill, ma'am. And then some company noticed that it had never been put up for FDA approval. Now, good grief, the stuff has been around for at least since colonial times, so what's it need uh, FDA approval for? But it never had been, so they rushed it through FDA approval, got it approved. FDA promptly ordered all the generic, so-called, off the market. Instead of eight cents a pill, you know what it costs you or your insurance company? What? Five Ten, bucks a pill. I was going to say five dollars a pill. Exactly. Yeah. It's so criminal. It's very hard to hear this. Very difficult. Share what happened with the paradoxamine. Well, same thing happened. Yeah. It got exactly. quote approved unquote. 
And so now you can buy it on prescription at a big high price, and before you could buy it at a low price in the health food store. Are they going to do this to everything? I mean, They're trying. Look, there is an approved form of fish oil. You can still get fish oil in the store. There's just too much of it. They're interested to get rid of it. So what's the good of the approved stuff? Well, insurance companies will only pay for approved. So for the same thing in fish oil, you can get your health food store for 25 bucks. You've got to pay over 100 bucks. Talk about driving up the cost of medical care. That money is all going straight into the pockets of the people who are selling the stuff. Your clinic has been raided once, right? <laughs> <laughs> A few yeah, times? We got raided at gunpoint by agents of the FDA, Los Federales. And when we um, got the search warrant to read, I would have bust out laughing, except that everybody's adrenaline was going so much because these guys kicked in the doors when they were locked and pointed guns at our reception staff. And that gets your adrenaline going. Um, but it would have been funny because they were there to seize our B-complex vitamins and our vitamin B12. Oh, my God. Yeah. But as the Seattle media soon figured out, it had very little to do with that and it had everything to do with the fact that we had sued the FDA the year before. We tried going through the legal process. Our attorney said we had a very good case, so go through the legal process. Well, three weeks after we filed the lawsuit, according to their affidavit to the judge, they started investigating our clinic. They sent through undercover agents. They went through our dumpster outside the clinic in the middle of the Seattle rain. And it took them from September to May, and they finally decided to pull an armed raid. Newspapers want to know why they needed to do that, too. Uh, this is a healthcare clinic, excuse us. But that's what they did, because we sued them. It had nothing to do with the B-complex, the B-12. That was just the excuse. How did your practice and how did your life change after that happened, or did it? Um, we were closed for one week, and we had to uh, take out a loan and reassemble a bunch of stuff. They took all of our employee uh, payroll records, by the way. Uh, so I was, I was wondering if they were going to pay our employees, but they didn't. Um, and we were back, um, back at work the following week. So it didn't seem to make that much difference to the practice. It obviously didn't silence you either. <sighs> it's too late for that. <laughs> Thank God. Thank God. But honestly, after it happened, were you shook up? Uh, actually, I was too busy to be shook up. My wife, Holly, did a very smart thing. She promptly called the talk show host. And uh, the talk show host had me on the radio three to, three hours the day it happened, and four hours the next two days. And by the time six months had gone by, I'd been on 150 radio programs around the country. I was just too busy. Kudos for Holly. Wow. She did the right thing. But you know what? It did keep us so busy that I lost 14 pounds in the first month. And I was complaining a little bit to Holly, and she's always looking at the bright side of things. She said, hey, you needed to lose weight anyway. So you know what we have there? is the FDA diet plan. And it goes like this. You're, you're just minding your own business, and some FDA guy comes and stick his, sticks a gun six feet from your face, and you lose your appetite. But it's federally approved and it's funded by the taxpayers. What could be better? Boy, you're gutsy. What are your biggest challenges now, if there are any? And do you consider that right now you're in really the highlight of your life because more people are aware of what's going on? Well, we have to give a lot of credit where credit's due, and that's to Suzanne Somers. Yes. For publicizing this whole field, just dramatically publicizing it, 
And since she started doing that, that's when it started growing by leaps and bounds. I actually put out the first book on uh, bioidentical hormones for ladies in 1997. And yes, it was the number one seller in natural health care on Amazon, but it doesn't take that many books in natural health care. It sold maybe 100,000 uh, the first year, and it got up to 250,000. But that was 1997. And then after Suzanne started her, her uh, series of books on bioidentical hormones, it really took off. She's done an incredible job. She does, and she's very, very smart, not at all like the character she played on television. She asks all the right questions in interviews. She does her homework and so forth. So big old thank you to Suzanne for making this a lot more obvious. And then the ladies have been dragging their husbands in. Why, why, should, uh, why should I use these, and why should my husband uh, stay healthier for longer? They're not the answer to everything, of course not, but if we can keep our hormones at a reasonable level, not too high, not too low, we certainly can stay a lot healthier for a lot longer. And by the way, anything you want to go over about testosterone, we've kind of ignored that one except on this uh, anti-carcinogenic one. Well, I was just going to actually tell you that my dad did have prostate cancer. He didn't die of it. He didn't have leukemia, but he had something wrong with his blood and my mother died of Alzheimer's and he was taking care of her. But even before she got that, he got very depressed. And I had said, you know, I heard a little bit of testosterone will make you feel a lot better. And he says, no, 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 it'll cause cancer. You know, it'll give me a heart attack or whatever. And he went to his doctor and the doctor said, absolutely not. Don't take any testosterone. And I'm clear that my dad would have had many more years of happiness and joy had he been able to supplement and had the knowledge base been in there. So please, in honor of my dad, whatever you'd like to say about testosterone. And there's one thing I do want to say, too, before you go to that, which is that there are some people listening and have said, look, if we're really copying nature, why, if we're in our 50s, 60s or 70s, or whenever people want to take bioidentical hormones, well, that's not really how nature is because nature has you where you are, which is that you're being depleted of your hormones. So how are we really copying nature? We're copying the nature of youth then, yes? Exactly. And okay. for people who say that, one of the first things to consider is that being dead is natural. <laughs> it's totally natural to be dead. <laughs> okay. Having said that, they might have been, I would have agreed with them more in the 19th century and the centuries before. In the 19th century, there was so little heart attack and heart cardiovascular disease that the very first cardiologist didn't hang out his shingle until 1914 in Boston. It just didn't happen. In the 19th century, there was so little cognitive decline, severe cognitive decline, that is, that when Dr. Alzheimer described his first case, Nobody ever heard of it, so they called it Alzheimer's disease. And in the 19th century, with the exception of the Inuit population, who previously were called Eskimo, there wasn't any osteoporosis to speak of either. Now, in the 20th century, Alzheimer's, my goodness, the National, what is that, the um, National Institutes on Aging, another um, <clears throat> use of taxpayer dollars, tells us that if we survive to 65 years of age, everybody who does has a 45% chance of getting 45%. It's on their website of getting Alzheimer's by age 85. <laughs> Good grief, that's nearly half the population. And you never heard of it in the 19th century. Now, I named those three things specifically because those are things that there is research proof that testosterone 
and estrogen, gender-specific for each gender, will cut down on the incidence of Alzheimer's dramatically. It will cut down on the risk of cardiovascular disease, and it will cut down on osteoporosis, which are things we didn't have in the 19th century. So pretty obviously, the enormous flooding of the planet with chemicals, the demineralization of the soil, the processing of the food, and all those other things that I'm sure you could name. There's all of the intense electromagnetic fields that we never had. Yes, absolutely. All those things have affected us adversely, and what the hormones do is give us a, the bioidentical ones. When we're older, they give us a fighting chance of not g- getting into that sort of nonsense. Is it true that the hormones, both for men and for women, help build bone and muscle mass? Yes, of course they do that more for men than women, but that's just nature. Right. Men use bigger doses and of testosterone. Women use smaller doses. But oddly enough, the effect of testosterone in protecting men against cardiovascular disease and against um, osteoporosis, huh, the ladies sneak in there after all. Researchers have found that there is a local enzyme in bone and in the artery walls that takes testosterone and turns it into estrogen, and then it has its effect. Wow. Yeah, so it's, yes, it's men taking testosterone, but it's that local enzyme that actually works on the testosterone to do the job. Wow, it's so exciting. It must be a never-ending, continuous learning marvel, your life and your job. Well, I'm having fun, aren't you? (laughs) I am. There you go. <laughs> I can't wait to have my 24-hour urine tested at your clinic and have a consult. And I hope that many of the people listening will do the same. What would you do with somebody with cardiovascular disease? So let's say a dear friend of mine, client, just had a quadruple bypass, and they're giving him every drug you can imagine. That's really too bad. It's so it's sad. There are so many things that will support the heart, support the arteries, and in fact... Uh, someone published a research study comparing statin drugs to time-release niacin, and they found that while the statin drugs slowed the progression of arteriosclerosis and the wall, blood vessel walls didn't get as thick as fast, that time-release niacin actually reversed the growth of the atherosclerosis and helped it to get less. No kidding. And there's, there's just... All kinds of things, magnesium, ribose, uh, L-carnitine, all kinds of things that can support the cardiovascular system. But here's a real biggie for you, and I know we're getting off hormones for a moment. That's okay. Let's do it. It's important. That's okay. When do men usually start? What decade of life do men usually start having more heart attacks? Is it 50s? 40s. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Yeah. Okay. Um, many more than in the 30s. When do women start having heart attacks? 50s. Late 50s and 60s. Yeah. Okay. Now, why is that? Um, let's see. We were taught in school that it's a difference between estrogen and testosterone. But it isn't much that at all. It's a little bit that. But let's look at this experiment that was published in 1999. Several hundred men were observed for seven to eight years. Half of them donated blood. The other half didn't. It wasn't exactly half, I'm sorry. I should have said a lot. close to half donated blood and the other half didn't. The men who donated blood on a quasi-regular basis had over 80% less heart attacks and strokes than the men who didn't. Oh, my God. No kidding. 
That was in my newsletter for January. Which we all need to get. Well, that would might save somebody's life, just that one little thing. Because here's the point. What do women do once a month between menarche and menopause? Why, they lose blood. And that cuts down on the number of formed elements in the bloodstream. A woman's blood count, while still within normal, is lower than man's blood count on a routine basis. She has less formed elements in her bloodstream, and more new blood cells are made to replace the ones she loses. Her blood is thinner. A man, he doesn't lose any blood, and so his blood is thicker. And what flows in the arteries better? Uh, just imagine a thought thing here. Uh, what's going to flow better? Um, ketchup? Tomato paste? Or tomato soup? That is so interesting. So for women who are not menstruating anymore, we should get a blood test a month or every couple months? Oh, no, not even every couple months. But if you're not menstruating anymore, that's when the curve starts to climb on those heart attacks. That is fascinating. And so thing to do is just maybe once a year get blood count, and if it's going up too high, go donate. And other people just put themselves on a regular program. It's a matter of what's called blood viscosity, the thickness. And it explains, by the way, why in atherosclerosis the plaque always forms in the same places. It doesn't form in the arms. It doesn't form in the legs. It's always in the coronary arteries near the branch points. It's always in an artery where one blood vessel is 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 uh, what shall I say pumping blood into the opposite wall of another blood vessel and if there are too many formed elements too many red blood cells and not enough young ones the young ones are a lot more flexible that's the whole point to being young you're more flexible than when you're older and that goes for blood cells too so if you've got every month an infusion of new blood cells why your blood cells are more flexible and if you don't your blood cells are going to get older and stiffer and have a larger stiffer population so basically, again, we have thicker blood, and that damages the walls of the arteries at those branching points and where the uh, artery comes in and pushes its blood up against the wall of the artery on the other side. It's a matter of physics. It's got nothing to do here with biochemistry. It's got to do with physics and the physics of blood flow, and I did not come up with this idea I'm looking at a book right now called The Origin of, Ather of Atherosclerosis. It's by Kenneth Kenzie, a cardiologist who is no longer with us, and his colleague, Young Cho, CHO. What really initiates the inflammatory process? Those guys have got it nailed. Very interesting. So back um, to testosterone, if we could. Yes, I'd like to. I have one last question, though, before we get there, quickly. Okay. Cholesterol. What's your take on cholesterol? What's your take on Lipitor? Is it old, outdated information, what we've learned about cholesterol? It's been outdated for years. But here's what Dr. Kenzie and Cho have to say, and they're correct. When that too thick blood starts to injure the inside lining of the blood cells, they have to repair themselves, don't they? Yes. Otherwise, it would tear right through. Um, so, imagine what happens when you're out in the garden working really, really hard in the spring and summer. What do you get on your hands? It's called callus. We don't have to go around with callus all the time, don't, do we? No, because we're not putting that much pressure on our, our, on our hands. Well, what happens when the inside lining of the arteries are damaged and we don't get the pressure off because the blood stays as thick because we're not donating blood or the alternative is using a bunch of fish oil because that lubricates things and thins them down too. Um, the body has, brings in inflammatory cells, 
And that cholesterol is part of trying to protect the artery against the overviscosity, ma'am. Wow. So it is true that high cholesterol might be a risk factor, but why is the cholesterol high? Because we're damaging our blood vessels, and the blood vessels are trying to repair themselves. That's one of the reasons the cholesterol is high. Now, there's another very important reason cholesterol is high, though, that doesn't have anything to do with that, and that is one-third the population, according to statistics, has the genetics that will end them up with type 2 diabetes. It's in their family. And the genetic lesion there is the overproduction of insulin in response to sugar and carbs in general. And people who have type 2 diabetes in their families, they really shouldn't eat terribly many carbs, especially not the refined ones. I didn't say none, but just not as much as other people. So you said they shouldn't eat too many carbs. That's what you're saying. Yeah. I'm not saying zero carbs. I'm just saying not as many as people who don't have type 2 diabetes. All right. Well, when we overproduce insulin, the very overproduction of insulin is the signal to the liver to make more cholesterol. So actually, a lot of the people I work with who have high cholesterol, I'll just say, "Uh, anybody in your family got type 2 diabetes? Well, yeah. Okay, I want you to go on the caveman diet because that's a low-carb diet, and that's the best one as far as I'm concerned. It fits all of nature's guidelines. And they go on the caveman diet, and bingo, their cholesterol normalizes. I shouldn't say bingo. It takes six months. But their cholesterol normalizes because with that caveman diet, the insulin signal comes down. The insulin signal comes down. The liver quits cranking out cholesterol. Isn't pregnenolone made of cholesterol? Yes, cholesterol is a precursor for making pregnenolone. In fact, cholesterol is a precursor for making making every sex steroid there is, and also cortisone, and also DHEA. Fascinating. And when you say the caveman diet, do you mean the paleo diet? That's the one. Okay. That's uh, one of the best uh, developments of the last few years, although actually the first book I wrote in 1979 uh, talked about a version of the paleo diet. I just didn't call it the paleo diet. Dr. Richard Lippman, in his book, Stay 40, Without Diet or Exercise, wrote a lot about you and your clinic and your work in the world. Are you aware of that? I know, Rich. He's He's very excited about the work that you're doing. Anyway, the first observation about testosterone is a quick one, but it's one that natural medicine doctors have been making for years, and that is, do young men get prostate cancer? They have the highest levels of testosterone. If testosterone is so damn dangerous, excuse the language, then why don't men between 18 and 25 have the most prostate cancer? They don't. So there's got to be something the matter with that ages-old misinformation that testosterone causes prostate cancer. There's got to be something the matter with it because young men don't get prostate cancer. It's the older guys who have low testosterone, and that is what Dr. Morgan Taylor has finally gotten around to proving, that the lower levels of testosterone are the problem not the high levels. Isn't that interesting? Fascinating. Great news. Just look at what nature does. Nature doesn't give young guys cancer. It waits till we're older and we have low levels. Okay, so that's that's one observation. The second thing is that guys' testosterone goes down too, but it goes down obviously not abruptly. There's no uh, testicle pause. It's more a slow, gradual decline of testosterone. And at a certain point, it definitely makes sense for a guy to consider using replacement testosterone because, again, it's going to lower his risk of Alzheimer's, it's going to lower his risk of cardiovascular disease, lower his risk of osteoporosis, all those things. 
Now, yeah, testosterone's got a lot to do with sex drive in both genders. And by the way, it's not the only thing that has a lot to do with sex drive. Some women tell me DHEA works more for them, and a few women say estrogen does better for me for sex drive. But for guys, testosterone is indeed the major so-called sex driver. So guys will come in and they'll say, oh, I want that testosterone. Uh, uh, ladies aren't looking so good. I need some and so forth. And I'll say, okay, but did you know that testosterone also lowers your risk of Alzheimer's dramatically? And you know what? If you can't remember who, who you were with or what you did with her, what's the good? <laughs> That's a good point. Who's on first? <laughs> no, I try to focus on the mental health first. Well, we, we, we've all heard that the brain is the biggest sex organ anyway. Right. So let's focus there first, and the rest will come on along. Now, guy takes testosterone, and we do a test, which at this time we have to do in blood because we can't uh, get it as accurately in the urine. It tells us about the pro and anti-carcinogenic metabolites of testosterone. Just like estrogen, there's pro-carcinogens and anti-carcinogens. And, of course, we want a guy to have more pro, more anti-carcinogens than pro-carcinogens than most guys do. Because the majority of guys don't get testosterone late cancer. But some do. And there are ways of getting our own bodies to make more of the good testosterone. And guess what? Researchers have found two ways that we can all use at home. They're called coconut oil and olive oil. Are you serious? Coconut oil? serious. How does coconut oil convert? Well, it doesn't convert into testosterone. What it does is it helps to induce the enzymes that help us make more of the good form of testosterone. So there, there are enzymes at every step in metabolism, testosterone to this metabolite, to the next metabolite, to the next metabolite, and there are enzymes at each step. And the enzymes that take it down the path to the anti-carcinogenic testosterone are stimulated by coconut oil and olive oil. Now, they're also stimulated by a lot of other things, but most of those you need a prescription for, even though they're natural. One of them is thyroid, the thyroid hormone called T3. That stimulates the anti-carcinogenic testosterone. Um, And then there's a form of vitamin A called all-transretinoic acid, and there is the coconut oil, and there is the olive oil, and there's one which I've forgotten at the moment because I don't... Oh, yes, it's called NADH because I don't need to use it very much, and it's kind of pricey. But all those things are natural, and nobody, I am sorry, but nobody is going to come up with a patent medicine molecule that gets our bodies to make more good testosterone. Just like with women, the things that help women's bodies make anti-carcinogenic estrogens are all natural molecules. That's the way nature is. Do you remember in your book that you talked about if a woman has given birth that it lowers her propensity to get breast cancer? Sure does, because when she is pregnant, she is flooding her breasts with estriol. And that stuff is an anti-carcinogenic estrogen. So yes, uh, pregnancy does lower the risk. It doesn't eliminate it, but it lowers it. Now, the big things that lower the risk of breast cancer are vitamin D. Big deal. D or D3? D as in doggy. Oh, and that would be D3. D3, okay. Next, iodine and iodide. They're very important. In fact, researchers in Mexico and India have found that iodine combines with certain fats in the breasts and it directly kills breast cancer cells. No kidding. They're called iodolactones and they kill breast cancer cells. So are you a big iodoral advocate? 
Oh, yeah. Now, Dr. Guy Abraham is the one who pioneered the way on the iodine. Right. He come with, came up with the iodoral, I-O-D-O-R-A-L, but it has competition from another company which makes exactly the same thing except they put it in a capsule, and they call it I-T-H-R-O-I-D, iThroid. So I don't want to just mention one company here. Right. So notice it has competition, which you'll never get with patent medications. So if we stick with natural medicine, which you can't patent, the price stays down. We're not going to have this ever-escalating nonsense of up, up, up healthcare costs because one company brings on something natural that works, and here comes another company with the same thing pretty soon. <laughs> have you met Dr. Michael Hollick? No, I haven't. He's done, I think, 30 years of research in the area of vitamin D3. Oh, and, I'm sorry. Yeah. I just heard you. It's Holick. Holick. Dr. Michael Holick. it's Holick. I could be wrong, but yes, I have met Dr. Holick. So. He's on with us tomorrow morning. Yay. Yay. <laughs> so you've got vitamin D, lady. You've got iodine. You've also got broccoli. Yeah, I saw that whole list in the book. That was very exciting. Yeah, just eating broccoli and cabbage and so forth cuts the risk of breast cancer, and so do Fish oils, omega-3 fatty acids, there's a lot of stuff that'll cut the risk of breast cancer. And let's not leave out the guys. For guys, the list includes vitamin D, broccoli and cabbage, no kidding, uh, We and the fish oils, but we don't know about the iodine yet for guys. What do the fish oils really do beside that? Well, fish oils are nature's number one anti-inflammatory, absolutely number one. And... We know now that there is so much that's being blamed on inflammation in the body. Now, sure, we're going through a phase. We're having, inflammation is the flavor of the decade, and there will be another flavor but it, next decade, I hope. But it's still, that doesn't mean to diminish its importance. Inflammation has got a ton to do with disease processes, and fish oil just helps damp down inflammation. It damps it down marvelously well. However, I've got to say here that we never, ever, ever should use fish oil without accompanying it with vitamin E because fish oil unaccompanied by vitamin E after a period of several months to several years can start damaging cell membranes through a process called, for what it's worth, lipid peroxidation. But if we have enough vitamin E in us, that doesn't happen. I would imagine that Life Extension would have something developed where it's in there, but I didn't see it in my bottle. Hardly anybody has that yet. I don't know quite why. Maybe because vitamin E has been sold separately for so long. But, and by the way, it has a lot of good uses separate from fish oil, but it always should be used with fish oil. And it always should be the mixed tocopherol form, never the alpha tocopherol. Using any of the vitamin E's by themselves gets things out of balance and causes trouble. You know, I really would like to invite you back on to talk about a few of your other books as well but particularly why stomach acid is good for you. I know that was written in 2001, and it's been out there for a while, but I hear so many people with acid reflux and heartburn and all kinds of problems with their stomach and digestion that I really think a whole segment should be dedicated to this. And I'm sure you're still in consultation with your patients about this, aren't you? You can't help it. The Mayo Clinic published a study in the 1930s in which... They checked the stomach acid content of people at every decade of life except for small children. They did teenagers, they did 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, etc., etc. And what they found in their study was that by the time we all get to be 60, half of us, our stomachs aren't making enough acid along with the accompanying enzyme pepsin to completely digest everything and get our nutrition in. So basically, 
that half is getting less nourishment out of the food, even if they're eating perfectly, than they did when they were younger. So in a, in a manner of speaking, they're getting malnourished. Now, it turns out that <clears throat> that's no big surprise, folks, because look at what happens as time goes by. It's going to happen to everybody. Let's see. I can't run as fast as I, as I could when I was 20. Can you? No. Uh, some of us, many of us, need glasses as we get older. Uh, some of us, uh, why, now we're getting gray hair and white hair, and we had brown hair. And so things do slow down with time. That's nature. So whatever, whatever, besides TV commercials, convince people that what happens when we get older is our stomachs speed up and start making too much acid. I mean, duh. Uh, they don't. They make too little acid. And oddly enough, when we get into a, this other topic on the air, <clears throat> we'll go over why it is that too little stomach acid is the major cause of heartburn. Not too much. It's absolutely fascinating, and I think it's really important. I just cannot tell you how many times I sit with people at dinners and at occasions, and they're in pain or they're uncomfortable, and they're taking Prilosec? There's Prilosec, there's Prevacid, there's Protonics. Now, you probably know that all of those have been shown to cause bone loss. They've been shown to cause pneumonia. They've been shown to cause, of all things, vitamin C deficiency. They've been shown to cause more infections in the gut. All those things come from taking those particular medications, and it's in the medical journals. There's nothing, uh, nothing I'm making up. Are you a big proponent of apple cider vinegar or sodium bicarbonate for heartburn? Sodium bicarbonate, no. Uh, now, if you got to put out a fire, okay, put it out with a bicarb. But you keep doing that, you're going to mess up your digestion just as badly as if you're taking an acid blocker. On the other hand, I think what you're talking, telling us about is Vermont folk medicine, aren't you? You're familiar with that. Say that again. Vermont folk medicine. There was a book put out called Vermont Folk Medicine. came out in the 1940s. And the big deal in that book was if you have indigestion, take a tablespoon of apple cider vinegar, for, um, stir it into water, and take it with meals, and you probably won't have heartburn. And you know what? That does work. But it's enough to relieve the heartburn. It is not enough to get digestion back up to what it was when our stomachs were working. Very important what you're saying. It's like getting rid of the symptom versus getting to the root of the problem. Right. Do you take hydrochloric acid, for example? Right, so. I'm, uh, I'm of the appropriate age. Is there a certain age? Well, remember half of everybody by age 60? Yes. I've gotten that half. <laughs> well, I'm a little younger than you, so... Hopefully I can wait. But actually, I've had heartburn a little bit lately. So I don't know. Because uh, what were the male figures? It was about 25, 30% when people were 40. That's still a lot. Still a lot. That's right. Is there anything else you'd like to say today? Well, let's see. If one is doing a complete bioidentical hormone replacement, um, then for ladies, we need estrogen, progesterone. We need some DHEA, if uh, almost always, and uh, probably a smidge of testosterone. Can't really say for sure if that DHEA will make enough testosterone. But one that we left out totally, which is bioidentical, is thyroid. And can you imagine that the average 50-year-old thyroid gland is working just as well as when he or she was 20? Duh, probably not. So most of the time, if we take a look, we're low normal. Um, what's the point of being low normal? Why not be mid-range? As I mentioned before, I don't like high normal, but I don't like low normal either. So thyroid frequently needs to get thrown into things. Thyroid is just absolutely key to 
energy metabolism in the body. And so that's usually part of the uh, overall thing, too, that needs to be looked at. How do you test that? Through the blood? That one there's a very good blood test for, but it doesn't just test for one thyroid hormone. It checks for a variety of thyroid hormones. And again, that's a topic for... Uh-oh. <laughs> that's a so-called emergency line. Uh, Holly will get that and it'll quit ringing. All right. Hold on one minute. I'm just going to say goodbye in a proper way. Ladies and gentlemen, we have been talking with, learning from, and listening to Dr. Jonathan Wright. We talked a lot today about his book, Stay Young and Sexy with Bioidentical Hormone Replacement, The Science Explained, that he co-wrote with Lane Leonard, PhD. It's revised, expanded, and updated. And if you'd like to get a hold of him, you can reach him by going to www.tahomaclinic.com. And you should order his newsletter. You can get his newsletter at Wright Newsletter, W-R-I-G-H-T, newsletter.com. Dr. Wright, thank you so much for being with us today. And I am going to call you back to really get into the stomach and other areas of health. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for getting this word out to your audience. I'm sure it'll do somebody some good. So thank you for that. Thank you, Dr. Wright. Bye now.